Welcome to Canthropod. This is episode 11, Birdsong, by Jonathan Woolley, with editing by Hugh Williamson. If you come down from the heavily cultivated fields east of Norwich into the floodplain of the River Yare, you will find yourself surrounded by the melodies and calls of birds. I have many happy memories from my fieldwork exploring the lush paths of this wetland landscape, accompanied by a chorus of warblers, wood pigeons and waterfowl. Birdsong is perhaps one of the most distinctive features of the natural world, and its cultural significance can actually tell us a huge amount about how people in different parts of the world experience their surroundings, and help us draw out different ways of sensing to which we all have access. A seasoned birdwatcher I interviewed spoke of one occasion when he was walking along a footpath early in the morning, only to come across a photographer taking a picture of a pheasant. To get the best angle, the photographer had stood about a metre or so from the edge of the path. In the tree beside him, a blackcap, a little songbird, was, in the words of the birdwatcher, going utterly ballistic. The birdwatcher could tell from the blackcap's alarm call that the photographer was standing close to the bird's nest. The photographer, however, was oblivious. As far as he was concerned, the blackcap's frantic calls were simply part of the ambience of a bright morning on the broads. What's interesting about this anecdote is that it reveals birdsong to be a sign, or even a proxy, a means of discerning certain truths that might not otherwise be apparent. The boom of a bittern resonates from a healthy fen. The plaintive wail of a lapwing is a sign that a fox is passing unseen through the undergrowth. An alarm call of a small bird can tell you that a nest lies nearby. And yet, if you do not recognise these calls or their significance, then the information communicated by these proxies will pass you by. Proxies are a feature of the scientific method. They are used when direct observation isn't possible and viewing the landscape as filled with signs and proxies indicates the power of that method in Western society as a whole. We see echoes of this approach in literature too. In her epochal narrative, Silent Spring, Rachel Carson used the ominous absence of birdsong as a sign of the toxic threat posed by chemicals used by industrial agriculture. Carson pointed out that the unrestricted use of pesticides like DDT was causing catastrophic damage to the Earth's food chains and warned that unless steps were taken, the birds would die and their songs would be silenced. Picking up on Carson's motif, George Monbiot has more recently suggested that rewilding could ensure that the silent spring of intensive upland management could give way to a raucous summer of biodiverse upland ecology created by allowing trees to grow unhindered by grazing. The notion of birds as providing meaningful signs that point to future events or to the will of non-human persons is an old one. For the ancient Romans, birds were the medium of one of the most primary forms of divination, augury. Specially trained priests, called augurs, would be consulted regularly. They, in turn, would discern the will of the gods, and the likely outcome of any endeavour by studying the behaviour of birds. Both the flight 
and the song of birds was considered, although only certain birds could yield valid auspices. Some, such as owls and ravens, had ominous calls, while others, like eagles and vultures, gave auspices through their flight. Some birds, like the black woodpecker, would give auspices through both. For the ancient Roman augur, birds were proxies as well. In this respect, modern ecology represents a direct line of continuity to the wisdom of the ancients, in which the actions of birds can tell us what to expect of our surroundings, so long as you understand their meaning. For British naturalists, birdsong is therefore not unlike any other part of the landscape. It is a sign that can be witnessed, recorded and interpreted, that points to further, particular truths about the place where it is found. But birdsong does not resonate in the same way for everyone, everywhere. The ethnographic record includes many examples of human interactions with birds, in which their songs play very different roles. Stephen Feld, for example, describes how the Kaluli people of Bosavi, Papua New Guinea, dwell in a startlingly different sort of landscape. Covered in thick forest and crossed by many rivers, it is difficult to see very far, quite unlike the wide vistas and big skies of Norwich's open fens. In Basavi, sight plays a less important role than sound. The distinctive sounds made by particular waterfalls and rivers, expertly evoked by the tones and rhythms of Kaluli folk songs, play an important role in helping local people conceptualise the arrangement of valleys and watersheds, as do the songs of birds. Feld recorded a particular song given to him by Ulahi, a Kaluli woman, in which the raucous song of a hooded butcher bird is used as a motif to lend texture, structure and form to both the social and natural features of her local area. These sounds are not treated as separate, discrete signs or motifs, however. Rather, they interlock with one another to form a single soundscape, a sense captured in the metaphor of Tulugu Ganalan, or lift-up oversounding used to refer to identifiable noises that rise temporarily into one's attention from the overall surrounding ambience. For the Kaluli, Fell tells us this placing of sound is at once a sounding of place. Even as individual sounds are noticed as such, they resound with the timbre of the wider whole. The soundscape inhabited by the Kaluli of Basavi, Feld says, indicates the need for Western scholars to pay careful attention to the role of hearing, to reach for a new acoustimology of place. Feld's major point is that whereas the visual orientation of Western culture creates a distancing gaze that places the landscape at a remove from the observer and removes the observer's own embodiment from description, the acoustimology of the Kululi presents a radically different way of sensing and making sense of the landscape. Song that for a Western conservationist is a diagnostic sign of bird behaviour or of the state of the land itself is, for a Kaluli person, a metaphor replete with embodied meanings that flow into one another like the rivers and waterfalls of Basavi. But it is possible to subvert cultural conventions. Anglo-Finnish artist Hannah Tuliki's enchanting performance At Sing Two Birds reworks two traditional English songs, The Cuckoo and The Blackbird, to resonate better with the calls of birds after which they are named. The outcome is a piece of music that is deeply evocative of the countryside and the birds that inhabit it, that transports me back to the floodplain of the year whenever I hear it. Blackbird, the summer 
the new nature writing too troubles the status of disembodied observer and narrows the divide between nature and naturalists. Mark Cocker, in his soaring monograph Crow Country, describes the flowing, gurgling current of music made by the rooks of Buckingham Carr, a location a few miles from where I stayed in the Broads and one of the oldest and largest rookeries in the country. He points out the ubiquity of rooks calling in the distance on radio or television programmes set in rural locations. The voices of rooks, Cocker claims, are seamlessly connected with the countryside as a whole, the audible essence of the English rural unconscious. For Cocker, the ceaseless, clamorous calls of rooks, when accompanied by jackdaws, calls to mind the flowing of water. Perhaps, then, Basavi is not all that far away from Buckingham Carr. <laughs> 